This is Dr. Sean Canone, and welcome to this podcast episode, where today we'll be looking at the role of acetylcholine in normal bladder functioning, and also be looking at the benefits and pitfalls of traditional anticholinergic therapy for urinary incontinence. Now, in previous episodes, we've discussed the role of acetylcholine in the human body. We've also looked at the concern of anticholinergic burden, where drugs with anticholinergic properties may stack up in an elderly patient and impair the normal functioning of acetylcholine at any of the five muscarinic receptors in the body. You might recall that we came up with a phrase that will help us remember the most common manifestations of anticholinergic drugs in the elderly. Can't spit, can't see, can't poop, can't pee, can't think. But don't forget that anticholinergic drugs can also have an effect on the heart and lungs. Acetylcholine normally slows the heart rate as a parasympathetic-mediated response at the muscarinic 2 receptor. So anticholinergic drugs could interrupt that normal physiologic process and cause speeding up of the heart rate. In the lungs, acetylcholine impacts the muscarinic 3 receptor to cause bronchoconstriction. So again, here, if an anticholinergic drug is introduced that blocks the muscarinic 3 receptor, the result would be bronchodilation. Now, in our previous episode, we spent a significant amount of time focusing on the can't-think part of our anticholinergic phrase and the role of acetylcholine, as well as the effects of anticholinergic drugs at the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain. We discussed the various etiologies of dementia and specifically looked at the pathophysiology and pharmacological treatment approaches to Alzheimer's disease dementia and Parkinson's disease dementia. This week, we'll look at the can't-pee aspect of anticholinergic activity and explore the role of acetylcholine at the level of the muscarinic 3 receptor in the urinary bladder, and here we'll find that drugs with anticholinergic properties may have the potential to help, but also could have the potential to greatly harm our patients. Let's begin by looking at normal bladder functioning. Remember that there are five muscarinic receptors in the human body that are activated by the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. In the bladder, the muscarinic 2 and muscarinic 3 receptors are predominantly expressed. However, it's the muscarinic 3 receptor that's primarily responsible for smooth muscle contraction in the bladder. When acetylcholine attaches to the muscarinic 3 receptor, you can probably guess what the physiological response is. This is the parasympathetic nervous system, the non-fight-or-flight system. So the response is something that you would not want to happen during a fight or a flight. The bladder contracts, and urination, also called micturition, occurs. It's very important to note that the muscarinic 3 receptor is also predominant in other key areas of the body, including the salivary glands and the bowels. It makes sense, then, that eating and bowel movements would also be more appropriate at times of parasympathetic activation. If this is the role of acetylcholine in these systems, then what types of effects would you anticipate if you gave a patient a medication that were anticholinergic and could block the muscarinic 3 receptor? You guessed it. Dry mouth, as well as reduced bowel movements and urination. And that would cover can't spit, can't poop, and can't pee in our anticholinergic phrase. So how might these muscarinic 3 anticholinergic effects present in clinical practice? Well, first, in the salivary glands, it would lead to dry mouth. And this could present as decreased appetite, intake, or even decrease in weight. It could also lead to poor dentition and poor swallowing function. In the bowels, this anticholinergic function would slow motility 
and could cause constipation, increased laxative use, fecal impaction, abdominal discomfort, or potentially diminished appetite. In the bladder, anticholinergic drugs would lead to a diminished contractility, and this could result in urinary retention, UTIs, or even the need for chronic or intermittent catheterization. At this point, you might be realizing that there's potential benefit to blocking the muscarinic 3 receptor with an anticholinergic drug, especially if a patient has overactive bladder or urinary incontinence, and that's exactly right. There can definitely be benefits to using anticholinergic drugs for patients who have overactive bladder or incontinence, but there is always going to be potential risk in other organ systems of the body. These are medications that must be used with extreme caution in the elderly, and the remainder of this podcast episode and the next will be devoted to understanding the risks, benefits, and alternatives to traditional anticholinergic therapy for these bladder disorders. His name was Ed, and I first met him on September 25, 2001. He was unknown to me, but I noticed on my walking rounds that he was in bed, out like a light at midday, seemingly forgotten. He had been admitted from the hospital to this skilled nursing facility six weeks earlier. As medical director, I pulled his chart to review it and noticed two things of immediate interest. One, he was on routine Haldol, being dosed multiple times a day. And two, there was no physician progress note in the chart. So I called the physician to inquire about his patient, to ensure that we received copies of his progress notes, and to come up with a plan to reduce this Haldol. And although he had checked the box on the hospital transfer form that he would follow his patient in the nursing home, the first words off his lips were, I don't see nursing home patients. So I immediately notified the director of nursing of this situation, and then I called Ed's daughter to come up with a plan. I wanted to find out more about her father's condition and why it was that he was in the hospital. She was very understanding of the situation and was able to give me a lot of very helpful information regarding his past medical history. It turned out that Ed's hospitalization, like many before, had originated with a UTI. It was known that Ed had severe Alzheimer's dementia, but during these UTIs he would become uroseptic, his psychosis would flare, he'd become very agitated, and there would be a need to put him on significant antipsychotic dosages to control his behaviors. Because of the recurrent nature of these events, it was decided at some point that he should just remain on antipsychotic therapy. With regard to his Alzheimer's disease dementia, he was known to be non-communicative. In fact, it had been years since he had spoken a meaningful word. He was considered late-stage dementia. The daughter really had no hope for her father and was amenable to my plan to transition him to a more suitable long-term antipsychotic. So my plan was to begin reducing the Haldol while gradually replacing it with Risperdal, an atypical antipsychotic with much less risk for motor consequences. Then once stabilized on Risperdal, I would attempt to gradually dose-reduce the Risperdal to see if we could find a lowest effective dose. She cautioned me that whenever anyone tried to remove his Haldol, his psychosis, agitation, and behavioral issues had returned. And with the recurrent UTIs and urosepsis, it might just be better to leave it alone. I wanted to see what I could do for this man. I knew it would take a lot of time and patience, and I didn't really know what success would look like, but I wanted to help, and at this point I really didn't think I could make life much worse for him. So I went and examined Ed. And obviously I wanted to deal with the underlying dementia and the psychotic agitation, but I also wanted to try to prevent him from having another UTI. I really felt like that would set us back tremendously, 
and it seemed from the history that the vast majority of this man's psychosis and agitation came during these times of urosepsis and hospitalization. So my thought was if I could figure out why he was having UTIs and stop them from occurring, that would help tremendously. But why does a man have recurrent UTIs? That's a fairly odd thing because of anatomy. Well, it was easy to perform a rectal examination on Ed because he was fairly obtunded with his Haldol dosing, and his prostate was found to be very, very enlarged. He had BPH. I called the daughter back and told her that he really needed to be on a medication for this to shrink the prostate down so that he'd have a better chance of emptying his bladder completely when he urinated, and maybe this would reduce the risk of UTIs. She was very open to this idea and wondered why no one had ever checked his prostate and treated this before. But she also expressed concern about his incontinence worsening. And this became a very key piece to the puzzle for me, because I had wondered in reviewing his medications why he was on oxybutynin, or ditropan. I was very aware that the anticholinergic effects of this medication could impair cognition and even trigger some of the delirium or psychosis that he might be experiencing, And even if it was beneficial for his incontinence, we would have to weigh the risks and the benefits. But now things were coming clearly into view, because Ed had severe BPH. And while it was very possible that he had some degree of urge and functional incontinence, the majority of his problem was overflow incontinence. He could not empty the bladder completely because of the obstructing nature of the prostate. So this predisposed Ed to UTIs. But using an anticholinergic drug like oxybutynin is actually contraindicated in patients with overflow incontinence because they further reduce the bladder's ability to contract. And now this man's bladder had become a breeding ground for bacteria, UTI after UTI after UTI. And then those UTIs led to urosepsis, hospitalization, delirium, psychosis, antipsychotics, and the cycle just continued to repeat. So the oxybutynin, or ditropan, was the first thing to go, and tamzulosin, or Flomax, was the first thing to be added. And you know, Ed never had another UTI after this for the remainder of his life. It took quite a bit of time, but eventually the Haldol was completely replaced by low-dose Risperdal. I then began pharmacological treatment for his dementia, and then even the Risperdal was able to be discontinued. With regard to his cognition... The removal of this anticholinergic burden from oxybutynin really helped to free up the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain, which allowed for some positive impact. Ed was still not communicative per se, but he was more engaged in his environment, he was helping with some ADLs, and he would even smile at times. One afternoon, I was sitting at the nurse's station on the dementia unit writing a progress note on another patient when I heard a beautiful voice from a man singing, I'm in the mood for love. This is not typically the kind of lyric you want sung by a man on a dementia unit, but in this case, it was one of the most amazing things I'd ever witnessed. Ed sang the entire song, and as he was singing, I was able to call his daughter and hold the phone up so she could hear him. Needless to say, she was incredibly moved by this event, and although her father died a short time later from natural causes, my view on prescribing in the elderly was forever changed, and I now knew a little better what success looks like for a geriatrician caring for nursing home patients and their families. I also learned the devastating effects of anticholinergic drugs if they're not used properly, particularly in the area of incontinence. 
While there is much potential benefit from anticholinergic drugs in patients who have urinary issues, there is also much potential risk, and weighing these risks and benefits is crucial when prescribing these drugs. It may be interesting for you to hear that I have never actually prescribed an anticholinergic drug like oxybutynin for urinary incontinence. The reason is because they are indicated for overactive bladder, OAB, and not primarily for incontinence. In essence, it really doesn't matter if a patient has incontinence or not, because these medications should be reserved for those who have overactive bladder. Overactive bladder, or OAB, is a condition which can result from disturbances in the nerves, smooth muscle, and or the urothelial tissue of the bladder. OAB can be characterized by urinary urgency, frequency, and nocturia with or without incontinence. While there are many types of urinary incontinence, including stress, functional, overflow, and urge incontinence, it's OAB that typically presents with urge incontinence. Patients have increased sensitivity of the muscarinic 3 receptor to acetylcholine, and with the increase in bladder contractions comes a sensation of needing to urinate, and when that sensation is not controllable, urge incontinence results. In the next episode, we'll explore OAB a bit, look at some of the pharmacological treatment options that are available to us, and seek to establish a good framework for conducting a proper risk-benefit analysis for the use of anticholinergic bladder drugs. I believe you'll find it very practical and pertinent to the care of older patients in the nursing home setting and look forward to talking with you next time.